Welcome to Deep North, Stories from Iceland. Today, staff writer Eric Pomranke will be reading his piece, Pagan Poetry, an interview with Hilmar Hilmarsson, chief priest of Ása Trúafélaið, Iceland's fastest-growing religious sect. Pagan Poetry Also true society, how may I help you? This was neither the gruff voice of a metalhead, nor the voice of a wizened mystic, interrupted in his esoteric ponderings by the phone. To be frank, I was surprised. Over the next few weeks, missed phone calls, travel, and unread emails all began to pile up, turning what I thought was a simple interview with Hilmar Hilmarsson, the Alsherjagwadi, chief priest of the Alsa True Society, into something rather more involved. Perhaps this organization was more shadowy than I thought. Was this the weariness of a hermetic society, or just a series of misunderstandings? Finally, a call came through, and I was off to meet the chief priest of Icelandic paganism. The Path My GPS led me to the graveyard by Uskilith, the hillside underneath Perlan. As I went to turn behind the graveyard, a gate barred the way. This was turning out to be rather more involved than I had anticipated. One of the first laws established by the Ausatru Society was against proselytizing, Hilmar later told me. The Ausatru Society does not seek people out, does not convert, does not convince. The community consists only of those with the interest and desire to join, he told me. Accepting the weight of my spiritual task, I parked my car and continued on foot past the gate. The temple first announced itself as a construction site ringed with wire fences, just meters from the familiar path I so often take with my wife but never notice. Pressing through the brush and trees, I stood above a circular area ringed with concrete, wooden pallets, and plastic caution tape. It occurred to me that I may even be trespassing, At every stage of this small journey, I encountered resistance somehow. In a kind of initiation, I pushed past it. There was no Viking longhouse with smoldering peat hearth. Instead, I was confronted by a piece of modernist architecture with stark concrete slabs arranged in geometrical forms. The temple is both primitive and futuristic in the way that the standing stones of Stennis appear simultaneously as Neolithic constructs and alien monoliths. The Priest As I sip my coffee, waiting on Hilmar, I peruse the shelves of the Ausatru Society's library. Far from a single-minded interest in the Germanic and Wagnerian, the books here are cosmopolitan and academic, belonging perhaps to a 19th-century gentleman with an esoteric bent. Among the many titles I see are books on Coptic Christianity, Tibetan Buddhism, Jewish mysticism, and a smattering of New Age classics like Carlos Castaneda. It's my personal library, Hilmar tells me when he arrives. Don't read too much into it. Hilmar Ur Hilmarsson is the fourth Alsherjagodi of the Ausatru Society. Its founder, Sveinbjörn Beintinsson, lived nearly all his life on his farm in Borgafjörður. But Hilmar, 
has had a rather more adventurous and international life. Being part of the UK experimental industrial group Psychic TV for much of the 1980s. It was around bands like Psychic TV and adjacent acts Throbbing Gristle and Coil that the first wave of UK industrial music formed. In an irony of history, it was out of this scene whose screeching and aggressively experimental style stood at odds with traditional notions of folk music that the neo folk music scene emerged. Neofolk, with Hilmar at its periphery as well, took the dark and experimental attitude of first-wave industrial and married it to the countercultural spirituality of the 60s. Since Hilmar's time in the industrial and neofolk scenes, he's been active in the Icelandic music scene as well, both as an independent artist and as a frequent collaborator with the likes of Björk, Sigurós, and others. His musical career captures something important about the religious organization he represents, a split between the native and foreign influences. On the one hand, it is undeniable that Ausatru has a claim to be the original religion of the Icelanders. Rejecting the notion that the old gods ever went away, Hilmar tells me a story of how when Iceland gained its new constitution under Denmark in 1874, one of the first ways this was celebrated was a pagan ceremony in North Iceland. I imagine dark figures whooping around fires and forgotten heaths. But, as I later witness, the way the modern Ausatru society celebrates is rather more reserved. Likewise, Icelandic students in Copenhagen, on the basis of a tentative connection between Bjór and Thor, spontaneously rediscovered their pagan past and celebration. According to Hilmar, this tradition has always been alive, if maybe in hiding. But, on the other hand, the Ausatru society arose just as much out of an international, countercultural background, beginning all the way back in the 19th century with German romantics like Herder, Wagner, and the Brothers Grimm, more recent influences in experimental music, theosophy, occultism, hippie culture, environmentalism, and so on. But the man I sit down to talk to, both a pioneering experimental musician and chief priest of Icelandic heathenry, is a soft-spoken figure, wearing what I assume is a homemade lopapesa. Eternal Recurrence the biggest difference between us and the Christians, Hilmar tells me, is that the monotheistic religions are revealed religions. There is one God, there is one truth, and that truth is eternal and unchanging. It may come as a surprise to those from monotheistic traditions, but paganism does not, for example, have one canonical text. There is no Bible of Norse heathenry. There are, of course, poems and literary sources that are important in reconstructing the belief system, but the idea that truth comes from one source and can be contained in one definitive volume is a rather modern idea, specific to monotheism. As Hilmar puts it, monotheistic faith provides one truth for many, whereas Ausatru offers many truths for the individual. Another key difference in worldview is the notion of time. 
monotheistic religions, like Christianity, have a progressive and linear notion of time, Hilmar says. The world was created at some point, humanity fell out of paradise, and we await the coming of another messianic moment, the end of history. Such theological ideas combined in recent times with the Enlightenment rationality to create a worldview that said that things are always improving, and importantly, moving towards something. What was important for modern Christians and secular rationalists alike was the idea that history had an overarching narrative, whether it be comedic or tragic in nature. Such a notion of history would have been foreign to the heathen mind, Hilmar says. The pre-Christian religions, not just Norse paganism, all share a cyclical notion of history. It means that things are always moving in a cycle, he says. We see this in the 24 hours of the day. We see it in the seasons of the year. We are born. We mature. We decline. And then we perish. And then it starts again. And you find this in the ideas of the afterlife and the world described in the cosmological poems like Vulispal. It's useful to compare the sense of the English word religion with the Icelandic word siður, which can be rendered alternatively as religion, custom, habit, or tradition. Religion, in the sense that those raised in a monotheistic or secular society would understand it, has something to do with the relationship between an individual and a creator god. But the word siður in Icelandic has less to do with the beliefs of an individual and more to do with the accreted way of life of a community. Custom, after all, is inherently about other people. It is simply what one does. If you had asked an Icelandic settler whether they, quote, believed in Thor, I do not expect they would have understood the question. Pagan poetry. But also true, a form of seedr, and not religion, has a different relationship to historical and cultural identity than other belief systems. In reviving Ausatru, its practitioners have needed to reconstruct aspects both of the worldview more generally and also of the practical aspects of rituals and worship. The problem with the sagas, Iceland's most prominent medieval literature, is that they depict events that occurred centuries before their writing. Though the general historicity of these sagas is mostly undisputed, the medieval mind had a rather flexible conception of truth, leaving many historical details to be desired. A further dimension is added to the question of the historical authenticity of the Icelandic sagas when the religious conversion is taken into account. Although Snorri Sturluson's Ettukvæði, the poetic Edda, is an invaluable source for pre-Christian mythology, it is, like so much medieval Icelandic literature, a post-Christian text about a pre-Christian world. How does the Ausatru society grapple with these problems? This is a big argument, Hilmar says. Some scholars think there's nothing of value in the sagas as regards belief. But then you have people like Jón Nevel Alvstenson, who had the opposite theory. 
Hilmar here refers to his former professor and mentor, who was one of the first Icelanders to take folkloristics seriously as an academic discipline. You have oral traditions stretching back for hundreds of years, Hilmar explains. In the Balkans, scholars found oral poems and epics that have been transmitted throughout generations, practically unchanged. In some of these poems, the rhyme and meter are so complicated that the language doesn't evolve at all. It stays frozen throughout centuries. We've gotten used to the idea that writing is the most trustworthy form of transmission, but this isn't always the case. Some Icelandic sagas, for example, contain excerpts of skaldic poetry that can predate the written manuscript by centuries. We know this because of the systematic way in which language changes. Given the rigid, complex nature of skaldic poetry, individual words cannot change without breaking the structure of the poem. This allows both scholars and also true practitioners to identify some of the oldest passages in the sagas. One of the things we had to learn in the beginning of Ausatru was how to find which passages were the oldest ones in the sources, Hilmar explains. There are some passages that scream out they were part of a ritual, like the opening of Sigurdrivamal, a poem fragment found in the Codex Erigios, by far the most important manuscript for Edic material. The poem relates events found in the mythic Völsunga saga, describing the meeting of the hero Sigurdur and the Valkyrie Brynhildur. The poem, according to Hilmar, has this wonderful blessing in the beginning, which is quite obviously related to the cardinal directions. We see this in other cultures' religious rituals, where they begin by blessing the things to our left, to our right, behind us, in front of us, above and below us. Another source that has proved especially interesting to scholars and useful to the Ausatru society is Erbikja Saga, an Icelandic saga concerning the settlement of the Snifelessness Peninsula. Where many of the Icelandic sagas prove scarce on details of the pre-Christian religion, Erbikja Saga gives the only account of the construction of a pagan temple, though it still leaves much to the imagination. According to the saga, one of Iceland's settlers brings with him the dirt from underneath the altar of his temple. He deconstructs his temple to Thor, plank by plank, and brings it with him to Iceland. Features of the temple mentioned in the saga include an altar of sorts and an iron ring, traditionally the symbol of the power of the Gwadi, both a chieftain and priest. These days, the Ausatru society are also in the midst of building their temple. The temple, complete with a community area for reading groups and arts and craft circles, is still very much a construction site. Originally granted a plot of land by the city of Reykjavik in 2008, the banking collapse in Iceland hurt the society's finances. Construction finally began in 2015, but technical problems and other delays have left the temple incomplete to this day. Aspects of sacred geometry and the golden ratio can be seen, and other special numbers have also been integrated into the design, such as 9 and 432,000, a number derived from the 540 doors of Valhalla and the 800 Einherjar, or fallen warriors, mentioned in the poem Grimnismal. This number, Hilmar mentions, is also sacred to the Hindu tradition. 
Instead of shipping their timber from Norway this time, the Ausatru Society is using local Icelandic material. It is only in the last few years, the first time in Icelandic history since the deforestation that accompanied settlement, that trees suitable for construction grow in Iceland, with timber now being sourced from Hatlormstadur in East Iceland. New Ways Some rituals are totally absent from the saga material, such as coming-of-age ceremonies. We did have to improvise some things, Hilmar tells me, but we know there had to be one. We do it in a very historical context. The children go through Halvamal, the sayings of the High One, an Eddic poem, and a central text for Ausatru, and learn about the ethics it contains. But there's no commitment, no expectation that they make this the rest of their life. Funnily, he tells me that in the early days of the Ausatru society, there were no funerals. The community was still young and new enough that it was only after the passing of Sveinbjörn Beintinsson, the first Alsherjagodi, that the Ausatru society had to devise their funeral rites. Ausatru ceremonies are humble affairs. A wedding, for example, is a simple thing, the Gordi explains. The idea is that the couple, as individuals, are marrying themselves. My role, the role of the priest, is to sanctify that time and space. There is no set liturgy within the Ausatru society, and Hilmar tells me that Sveinbjörn Bentinsson would compose each ceremony from scratch, just like a poem, incorporating the occasion individuals, and landscape. While rooted in history, with more than a whiff of historical reenactment, the modern-day Goadar aren't afraid to admit that in some cases they're making it up as they go along. The changes aren't considered a threat, but an integral part of the experience. Living Tradition Despite the changing forms of Ausatru, when they consult the sources, they are nevertheless interested in the oldest sources. Presumably, this is because they perceive them as more authentic. So how does the Ausatru Society balance their more historical approach with, for lack of a better term, making it up as they go? Oh, but it does change, and it always has, Hilmar tells me. We know through archaeology and history that the practice has always changed. The location has always changed. A poem like Vullespau could not have been written in Denmark. It's flat. There are no mountains or volcanoes. Hilmar here is referencing one of the most important mythic poems, Vullespau, or the Prophecy of the Cirrus, preserved in Etikvaidi. It deals with the beginning and end of the world and tells of Fimbulvetur, the terrible winter that precedes Ragnarok, the end of the world cycle in Norse mythology. The poem describes clouds blotting out the sun, which scholars have widely interpreted as an influence from the Icelandic environment, a volcano. In fact, Hilmar says, many of the most essential features of what we call Norse mythology were likely absent before the settlement of Iceland. What we take as the canonical version, in other words, would have appeared as an innovation to, say, an 8th century Dane. For Hilmar, keeping Ausatru alive is not a matter of mindlessly reiterating the past. 
just as Icelandic settlers adapted a cosmology and ethical system to their new environment, so too must modern heathens find ways of preserving the essence of this tradition, while letting its forms evolve. Hilmar goes so far as to say that there are some who feel too strongly the need to practice the original form of the religion. People are drawn to everything that's old, and the archaic often presents itself as somehow more real than the modern, he says. Many may feel, for instance, that the runic alphabet, known as the Elder Futhark, is somehow more authentic than that which is known as the Younger Futhark. But the fact is that very few runic inscriptions from Elder Futhark survive. And when we think of the Golden Age of the Vikings, these inscriptions are all in Younger Futhark and its regional dialects. It is much the same with Ausatru, and Hilmar points especially to some North American Ausatru practitioners as taking the wrong stance towards the relationship between tradition and evolution. These people, he says, they want to hit you over the head with the Eddas. They quote the poetry like scripture. These people, those who want to worship a frozen past, are also generally those on the political fringes. Hilmar does not have much to say about them except that they run around and speak pigeon Icelandic. This idea that it has to be in your bloodstream, that it's ethnic or genetic, it's ridiculous. Full of life. The Alsatru Society has some 5,500 members today. In a small society like Iceland's, this is not a trivial number, accounting for about 1.5% of Iceland's population. Alsatru's rise is especially marked in comparison with the declining membership of the National Church of Iceland. In 1998, the Church of Iceland had 244,000 adherents. Today, it has declined to 229,000. Given Iceland's demographic explosion, this represents a decline fully from 90% of the population to just over 60% in two decades. For Hilmar, the rising popularity of Ausatru is simply explained. More and more people are exposed to the community and their ceremonies. 90% of the people that attend our weddings are good Lutherans, he says. I think the more people see that our rituals are serious and transparent, they're drawn to that. People want to make sense of their existence, and they also don't want their existence to be too somber. This, perhaps, is the secret of Alcetru's growing popularity. Their ceremonies are full of life, free from the stuffy confines of a church. Most Alcetru ceremonies are conducted outdoors. People like being connected to nature, says Hilmar, and the connection between nature and religious worship is a very intuitive one for many people. A lot of people are very glad when they attend our funerals, he remarks. They think they're more alive than Christian funerals. Rituals in Asutru are a celebration of life. We're more joyous than others, he says. Winter Nights Later that night, I attended what was then my second pagan ceremony, 
the Vetternautablot, or the first night of winter. The first night of winter is a traditional holiday from the old medieval Icelandic calendar. Like nearly all Ausatru ceremonies, it is intimately connected with the sun, falling just after equinox. I think of how in the depths of winter, the sun reaches its height, and winter begins, just as summer begins in the heart of winter. Now, we stand witness to the end of the latest summer and the start of the next winter. Harvests come and harvests go, and as we stand around the fire, we recreate a scene not just from settlement Iceland, but a time before that and a time before that, just as others will stand witness to future summers and winters. Two or three dozen people stood around the fire as Hilmar invoked the names of Odin, Thor, Freya, and others, pouring his mead horn and offering to the gods. We stood in the cold and sang songs I didn't know, and soon, in perhaps twenty minutes, it was over. The adherents dispersed, leaving only a fire still smoldering, smoke curling up to a moon, which stood shrouded above. Well, thank you for that, Eric. Um, to begin with, I, I wanted to ask you, um, what was it that drew you to this topic? Yeah, I mean, I think that... Um, well, so for one, uh, yeah, as we kind of uh, say in the piece, you know, there are, you know, it feels like kind of every six months or something, uh, you kind of see one of these pieces in foreign media and stuff um, that, you know, kind of sensationalizes the fact that Ausatru is the fastest growing religion in Iceland, you know, which is technically true, Um but it does actually have a lot more to do with the kind of relative decline of mainstream Christianity and just the kind of general secularization uh, in the West. Um, you know, so I mean, I think that like in some sense, it's also just like a kind of corrective to maybe an image of, um, yeah, you know, I mean, people really like a certain image of Iceland and they like reading headlines about the hidden people and the elves and, you know, like, like everything that's kind of, um, mythic and all of these things. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think kind of putting a face to the Ausatru society, um, is kind of more interesting than just, uh, yeah, these kind of somewhat sensational headlines. Uh, you know, I mean, also, uh, besides that, I mean, I think just, just personally for me, I mean, Hilmar er Hilmarsson is just a very interesting person. I mean, I it's actually, I mean, I was actually interested in him as a musician way before I knew that he was actually the Alciariogode of Ausatru. I mean, uh, I've just kind of been very interested in, like, experimental music uh, for a long time, and I actually did not even know that Hilmar er Hilmarsson was the religious functionary that he is uh, until relatively late, which I thought was kind of funny uh, that I just kind of stumbled across this connection one time. Um, well, tell us yeah. more about the music. What kind of music does he make? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, he's made pretty diverse music throughout his career. I mean, as I say in the piece, he has been a collaborator of, you know, just some of these like really big Icelandic acts like Björk and Sigurós. Um, but, 
you know, I mean, the place that he like really kind of started out uh, his music career uh, was in, um, you know, this scene of kind of early industrial music in the UK. Um, and, you know, I mean, uh, I think that like when people hear the term like industrial music, they might kind of have like one image in their head of what that means from like later forms of it uh, that were like a little bit more popularized and kind of like shaped by ideas in rock music, uh, you know, so like stuff like Nine Inch Nails and stuff like that. I mean, you know, kind of just like very like adolescent music in a way. Um, but, you know, I mean, like some of this kind of um, original stuff from the UK was uh, very heady, I would say. Uh, definitely not fun music. Um, you know, I mean, it's kind of a long story, but I mean, ultimately, uh, like what this music was kind of a reaction to was kind of like the political failures of punk to like really kind of bring about the radical change that punk kind of promised. And so, you know, I mean like industrial music, um, is, I mean, maybe not less political in that sense. I mean, like maybe less overtly political. Uh, it's like a little bit more individualistic. Uh, it's definitely more aggressive and weird. Um, but I mean, like importantly, like there's a lot of just kind of interesting things that emerged out of that scene. I mean, like more than the music itself in a way. Um, just there is this kind of scene in like the 80s and 90s, early 2000s in the UK that just kind of produced um, like – yeah, I mean, as, as I also say in the piece, like, there is this weird kind of, like, folk music scene that also kind of existed parallel to the industrial music scene, which is, you know, I mean, maybe not the most obvious pairing in the world. Um, but, yeah, like, just this very kind of interesting mix of kind of, like, hippie spirituality and, you know, very kind of, like, dark and experimental music, which, I mean, certainly as a mood, uh, you can kind of see like why that might kind of lead people to being interested in, yeah, you know, pre-Christian religion, heathenry, paganism, things like this. Um, so yeah, those are just some of the kind of things that kind of maybe led to the interest. I, I get, I get you. And, and tell us more about the, um, the temple that's been in the works for almost two decades now. What's the state of, of the project and what was it like uh, seeing it? Well, yeah, I mean, um, it was very interesting actually uh, just finding it um, because, you know, I mean, I do just go for like weekend walks like out, by Uskuthith, like, all the time, really. And I kind of knew in the back of my head that this is where the pagan temple was, um, but I'd never really bothered to, like, look for it. Um, and it was this very kind of interesting experience, just, like, finding it and kind of just, like, being out in the woods and not really being sure if I was, like, even in the right place. And I don't know, I mean, like, like all of a sudden, I kind of just felt like a little kid in a fairy tale or something and, like, this very familiar kind of parkland just, like it felt like very different kind of encountering it. Uh, yeah, it was like, it struck me almost like a scene from True Detective or something. <laughs> you were like wandering into this woods and pushing on despite yeah. these minor obstacles. And then I imagined you'd find someone with like a horse's head somewhere <laughs> naked. <laughs> yeah, no uh, 
no nivstung. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you know, so like, like definitely it's very like, like it makes a lot of sense that the temple is in this very natural area. I mean, um, the temple itself is not also just like an enclosed space. Like you might have with like a Christian church, um, like, like there is this kind of, um, community area that, you know, like, like that is like an actual building. I mean, that's still under construction. Um, but you know, I mean the kind of place where things actually take place, like that's all outdoors. Um, and you know, I mean, they purposefully, um, I mean, for one, I mean, I would suggest if people are interested in this to just look at some pictures online because it's kind of hard to describe in a way. Um, but, you know, like it is like this very evocative mixture of like the very old and the very modern. I mean, they're definitely not just trying to kind of like recreate what people think was like an old Viking building or an old Viking temple or something. I mean, um, that's the thing that I think is kind of interesting but also true is that, um, you know, I mean, obviously – what they're doing has something to do with history. And yet, you know, like there is this kind of openness to letting it change and to not just kind of recreating the past and, you know, maybe um, doing something just like historical reenactment. Um, you know, so, I mean, like the temple is still under construction. It kind of looks like a construction site, honestly. Um, but, you know, I mean, like it is this very kind of interesting um, blend of like the very old, the very modern, like there's like these kind of just big concrete slabs. Um, and yeah, like I say, like um, a lot of ideas of like geometry have kind of gone into it. Uh, so there are kind of aspects in the way that it's designed that kind of were built with things like the golden ratio in mind uh there's also yeah like like something that i thought was actually really interesting is like this this really big sacred number that hilmar was talking about 432,000 <laughs> which is a very specific number um but apparently uh this number also does surface in other world religions like in hinduism um because it's very like symmetrical right uh it can be divided by 9 it can be divided by 3 uh Obviously, it's divisible by a lot of other things, but uh, nine is like a very big sacred number yeah. uh, in Norse pathology. So, and, they, and they also have wood from Icelandic forests. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, for the first time in, you know, literally a thousand years, um, <laughs> Iceland now finally grows, again, a limited supply of kind of construction worthy timber um so it's been a very long time since icelandic forests could actually produce trees that are big enough to actually be used in buildings um and uh yeah so they've uh yeah, I, I i believe so 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 the town is called hatlundstadir i believe the forest is like jonskor uh yeah yeah exactly um so another thing that i wanted to touch upon now was, uh, and it's something that you gestured towards in the piece, but that you seem to have made a very conscious decision to somehow um, avoid in your conversation with Ilmar was this, um, I guess, association that uh, the Osatruafilaith and some of these pagan clubs and societies have with 
white nationalists. And I mean, for my own part, I, I, I sort of connect those two more in the States and in parts of Europe. It's always sort of been divorced for some reason from whatever's going on here in Iceland, even though that just may be ignorance or prejudice. But tell us a little bit about this association and and why you were hesitant to bring this up with Hilmar. Yeah, I mean, I don't quite want to say that I was hesitant to bring it up. Um, it is obviously a very important issue when you're talking about this. I mean, one thing that I did want to to accomplish is just kind of painting a picture of and I mean specifically Hilmar um, you know for people that kind of might not be familiar with these things and so you know I mean to just kind of like immediately use the F word fascism um, you know I just don't think that's quite fair uh, to the people uh, that I know that are in that society um, so you know obviously that's a very loaded word um, you know, at the same time, yes, uh, there is that connection. I mean, there's there's a reason why Nazi Germany was fascinated with North, North with Norse mythology. Um, there's, you know, I mean, like this kind of romanticization of the North, and it has to do with yeah, a history of racism. And you know, I mean, I think that like maybe the easy way out is to just say like, oh, well, you know that is just in other places. Like maybe uh, German heathens are the Nazis or maybe American heathens uh, and, you know, this kind of uh, weird new soup of proud boys and white nationalists and this kind of like bizarre revival in just kind of like weird turn-of-the-century kind of like esoteric intellectual stuff that like we've all kind of been seeing lately, you know, I mean, like, I don't really have like, a great solution to all of this. You know, I mean, like, like, like certainly the internet has just kind of made these things uh, a lot more accessible to people, you know? So like, if you want to just kind of go down the rabbit hole and you're um, an American uh, right-wing extremist, you can just become a Viking online now uh, and you can watch a bunch of weird YouTube videos that will kind of just give you weird ideas about uh, Norse mythology and stuff. Um, you know, I mean, I think that, I think it's true. I think that there is a, you know, a Nazi problem uh, in paganism. And yet, you know, there is something interesting that I think that these people are doing. And I mean, I think that it's also unfair to kind of uh, cast them all in with that lot, um, you know, and, and I mean, obviously one can't just speak in huge broad strokes, but, you know, I mean, I do think that's also probably the easy way out to say that like, you know, there are none of those people in Iceland either. I mean, without a doubt there are, hateful people. They're everywhere. Um, I mean, obviously you don't kind of see um, that group as like politically activated and active 
in Iceland. But, you know, I mean, like these recent terrorist attacks and stuff, I mean, there's maybe no direct connection. And yet, uh, you know, like those people were white nationalists. Uh, I mean, as far as I understand, they're kind of connected to other kind of northern European extremist groups. So, you know, like there's something there. And you're referring to the terror plots, the two individuals well, yeah, who were arrested yeah, sure. for yeah, okay. supposedly planning a terrorist attack. <laughs> yeah, so, sorry, I misspoke. No, not terrorist <laughs> attacks. So if I'm understanding you, it's it's a matter of you being sort of familiar with these people, having interacted and spoken with them, and maybe finding it unfair through your personal relationships with these people to sort of have to bring this up because you find it sort of outlandish and inappropriate? Am I reading that correctly? I mean, certainly not outlandish and inappropriate. I mean, it's definitely a problem. Um, You know, I mean, I think maybe the thing that I'm sympathetic to is that, you know, like we do live in an increasingly secular society. Um, I think that like a lot of people that are kind of born into a kind of culturally Christian background, you know, I mean, I think that, yeah, you know, I mean, like I also grew up like this, uh, like I had kind of Lutheran parents that weren't, uh, particularly, um, spiritual or religious. Um, and yet you go to church, you kind of feel like a desire for something there. And yet you somehow feel like this, I don't know, like doesn't have to do with you. Uh, anymore that like somehow Christianity has kind of passed its prime somehow. Uh, you know, I mean, did you find I, that feeling among the also through a rather, or I mean, I certainly think that like it speaks to this need that we all are looking for meaning and spirituality. And I think that, yeah, I mean like in a kind of increasingly secular world, like, you know, I mean, if you can't be a good Christian anymore, like you look for another system to kind of understand the world. And I mean, like, again, um, you know, I mean, something that I think is important is this distinction between kind of like religion and, uh, and this word see that, um, because I mean that, that is the word for religion in Icelandic, um, but it's not quite the same thing as in English because, I mean, again, it has these resonances of, like, custom and tradition. I mean, like, also community because that's what a custom is. It's, like, what other people have done for a long time, you know. So, like, we're all looking for a community. Like, we want to be a part of something and not just kind of, like, believe something intellectually by ourselves. Like, we want to be surrounded by other people um, that make us feel good that make us feel like we're part of something you know so people are looking for this and um and and one of the the advantages that you mentioned in the article as well is that um the arsatruafilaith seems quite open to change um so i was curious what's its relationship to say modern science does it have anything any ideas on that because maybe that's the primary reason or, or certainly among one of the main reasons that Christianity has fallen out of favor is you see this sort of, I don't know, unbridgeable gap between the tenets of Christianity and and, and some of the facts that modern science has acquainted ourselves us with. So I'm, I'm just curious about that relationship. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, 
obviously I can't speak for everyone and also to a failure, but uh, I do not suspect that there are uh, kind of heathen fundamentalists that literally believe uh, that <laughs> the world was uh, shaped out of a frost giant. Um, I think that there is a sense in which, um, you know, I mean, uh, just like uh, Thor is the impersonation of thunder and lightning. Um, you know, I think that you can kind of say that uh, in these pre-Christian religions, not just Old Norse uh, heathenry, but in many of these, uh, you know, I mean, like there's very much an awareness that this is also a way of talking about the forces of nature. And I don't think that like this kind of antagonistic relationship between science and belief really existed in the same way before kind of like modern science and modern Christianity. I mean, I think that the kind of opposition of those two systems um, is very much a product of the modern age. And, you know, I mean, um, whether that's just to say that like the pagan gods are just like an allegory or, you know, like whether there is a way of talking about these in which like, you think that they are literally real. I mean, uh, I can't quite answer that. Uh, but I mean, I definitely think that like for most practitioners of Ausutru, you know, like, like this is an, a religion about nature in a way. And because it's about nature, um, it is in some sense almost like more scientific. I mean, like, like maybe that's not quite the right way to put it, but I mean, I, I, I don't think that there is this kind of uh, opposition. Yeah, 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 but there's no maybe overt or any kind of movement within society itself or I, I, I guess there's no explicit connection or anything that they're not actively discussing the effects of science and progress and technology and, and the implications of that for this society system of belief. As no, far as you know. I, no. I, I don't think that anyone is uh, claiming that the world is only 6,000 years old. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, again, um, the overall sense that I get is one of, yeah, I mean, I think that it's fair to say worldliness. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, just kind of uh, look at Hilmar's bookshelf. I mean, like, like you know, like there's also a lot of just uh, kind of science there. Um, you know, I mean, I think that like they're very interested in just how the world works yeah. uh, and how to talk about these things. Um, and like this is one way to kind of have an interpretive system of how the world works. Um, but, you know, I don't think that, uh, yeah, I mean, whereas maybe some Christian fundamentalists uh, kind of need their specific reading of uh, – their theology to kind of come first before science. I don't think that, uh, yeah, I don't think that's the case. No, I mean, but it is an interesting point. I mean, I think with everything that's rooted in tradition and history, that going forward, you always need to continually reconcile yourself with progress and with the changing times. And I mean, we see this, whether it's constitutional law or Christianity, you know, there's these like constant meetings and, and people going back and forth trying to understand, okay, what does this mean for 
our tradition these times, and especially during these recent decades where time seems to be moving especially quickly. I'm just that's, that that raises such an interesting point of like, how do you grapple with that? Well, um, I mean, yeah, cer- certainly this idea of progress. Uh, I think that you know, like like that would also just be contested, right? I mean, uh, I think in this kind of cyclical notion of history, um, there is no kind of marching towards something. Um, history is, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, one damn thing after another. Um, you know, and yet uh, things change as they kind of repeat. You know, like there are patterns throughout history, and obviously history doesn't stay the same, you know. So um, obviously these religions have changed through time. Um, and, yeah, as we kind of say in the piece, um, you know, we now have an idea of what Norse mythology is, uh, and that was kind of given to us uh, by what Snorri Sturluson wrote down. Uh, but, you know, what Snorri Sturluson wrote down, uh, you know, that might not have really been recognizable as the official version uh, to a to a Norwegian settler in the ninth century or something like that. I mean, like these things do change. Um, you know, th- something that I think is really interesting is like also just the impact of, I mean, just the Icelandic environment and the landscape on this belief system. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like you just don't have uh, these kind of cataclysmic earthquakes and volcanoes and black clouds of death like in Germany and Denmark. <laughs> well, that's great. Um, thank you so much for the conversation and uh, for the article. Um, and our listeners can check out and read Eric's piece in the latest issue of Ice and Review. Thank you, Ragnar. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, Iceland's longest-running English-language magazine focusing on nature, politics, and community. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts.